Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com. If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look, Lord willing, at verses 14. And we'll see how far we go. (laughs) If you don't have the scriptures in front of us, uh, please uh, take out the insert in your bulletin. Uh, the scripture should be provided for you there. Make sure to follow along. And then if you don't have a bulletin, uh, you're welcome uh, to download the version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. And then after you download it, uh, go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title. And the scriptures will be on your phone for you, and you can save them uh, they are also for further reference. Acts chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll look at verses 14 through 24. I'll do my best. And we're going to do another brief series uh, leading up uh, to the birth and shaping of the church, which I've simply entitled Pentecost. And part one today is called Wa Tongues. Wa Tongues. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, got his first opportunity to preach by his teacher, John Mender. John Mender unexpectedly assigned him the Easter evening sermon. Graham tried to get out of it, saying he was unprepared, but the professor, the teacher, persisted. Desperately nervous, Graham raced through four memorized sermons, originally 45 minutes each, and he did it in eight minutes. Man, that's just so encouraging. First sermons are often memorable experiences. I'm sure for the right amount of money, you can go get my first sermon from my mama. And I preached it on a Sunday night. I think I was 12 or 13 years old, and I preached like three chapters of Galatians in 45 minutes. Whew, it was ugly. In the book of Acts, Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul, is going to narrate for us the Apostle Peter's first sermon. And Peter does tremendously better than both me or Billy Graham, all right? The beginning of Peter's sermon focuses on interpreting a miracle, explaining the significance of something supernatural that occurred. Peter is explaining why each of the disciples, the believers, this band of 120 people that were meeting in the upper room for prayer had come out and began to speak in tongues there in this public venue. In Jerusalem. And each of them was speaking a language that they had never learned or studied. It was a miracle. And so the crowd witnessing this miracle is asking, what is going on? They're asking for an explanation. Why tongues? 
And the Apostle Peter steps forward to answer the question. Look and see what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, Peter stood up with the eleven, that's the remaining disciples, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And here he's going to quote the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness And the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. <laughs> Man, he done got an amen and just read the scripture. An amazing first segment to his sermon. Amazing first segment. Here's the first thing that I want us to explore, and you can write it down, is the clarification. He's first going to step up and clarify what this miracle of tongues is. I love that Peter met scorn with scorn. But prior to this, in the immediate context, the crowds just thought, these guys are drunk. And they're speaking out of their minds and they're getting lucky. And we can understand what he's saying. It's just a big joke to the crowds. And Peter answered it again with scorn. He goes, drunk? How can these men be drunk? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now, if you think about this, and it doesn't show it uh, here in the text. It doesn't explain it in the text, but it was what was happening that day. This was the day or the feast day of Pentecost. That was what was being celebrated in Jerusalem. And if you knew what happened on Pentecost, and the Jews would have, is that they fasted to approximately 10 in the morning on the day of Pentecost. And so more than likely what he's in reference to is, we're good law-abiding Jews, and on the day of Pentecost, everybody knows, we don't even eat anything until closer to lunchtime. That's when we start to eat again. And so we haven't consumed anything. We haven't drank anything. How can we be drunk? We're, we're honoring Pentecost. 
And then I love what Peter does. All right, catch this. People will will make statements today about a spirit-filled preacher, right? Uh, As a matter of fact, not long ago, and there's nothing wrong with this if you have this. I'm just kind of wanting to illustrate my point. Is I saw a Bible. It was a new Bible with a new cover on it, and it was called the Spirit-Filled Bible. And I thought, well, isn't that awfully redundant? They just now came out with one? (laughs) The Bible is completely Spirit-filled, every single word. And here's what's so awesome, because you'll hear people talk about spirit-filled preachers, and what they often mean by that is somebody who pretty much neglects the Bible and just talks out of his mind. That's not a spirit-filled preacher. I love what it does. On the first day of Pentecost, a Pentecostal preacher got up and said, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. He was going to preach God's word to them. There is nothing mightier than the Spirit's words. And they're right here in this book. I need you to understand this. If a man is preaching this book to you, it is a Spirit-filled sermon. It is. Take your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 2. And so he turns to the Scriptures. And he begins to explain the events that the crowd is witnessing as a fulfillment of of Old Testament Scripture. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now let's, real quick, this would have been apparent to them. It's not so apparent to us. What was Joel prophesying about in Joel chapter 2? In the immediate context in Joel's time, there was this locust plague that ravaged Israel's land. And it created a severe famine. And Joel called Israel to repentance Promising that if they repented, God would restore their prosperity from the loss of this locust plague. And then here's what he does in the text that we see. Is is Joel is showing how the locust plague is a harbinger, an omen, if you will, of the great and terrible day of the Lord. When we talk about the day of the Lord with a capital T, D, we're talking about God's judgment on the world. So he's basically saying this, if you think the locust plague is bad, Israel, wait till the great and terrible day of the Lord. You see how that works? That's how he's functioning. So he's trying to warn them not only of their present danger, but the danger that awaits them in the future when God comes and judges every person for what they've done in the body. Now what's interesting is that Joel begins to give some signs Some things that are going to happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this is what's so important. Here's what what Peter's saying. Is what you're seeing is one of the signs. This is that. Okay? Now this should alarm anybody who's, who's listening. He's claiming we're fulfilling one of the prophecies before what? Judgment day. Do you see how this works? He's not trimming the truth at all. This gets serious real quick when he turns to Joel. A couple of things that I want you to note that he does in this passage by just quoting it. The first thing, you can write it down. Tongues here is connected to the Holy Spirit's outpouring. Tongues is connected 
to the Holy Spirit's outpouring. Now you say, what's so significant about the Holy Spirit being poured out? And then specifically we'll ask in this manner that's manifested as tongues. In the Old Testament, okay, back in Joel's time, so to speak, God poured out his spirit typically on just individuals at a specific time and place who would carry out God's work. And then when God's work was finished, the Holy Spirit would, would go back, would rescind. And so kings would be filled with the Spirit, prophets would be filled with the Spirit, priests would be filled with the Spirit. But there was no universal blessing of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And yet, what Joel is prophesying is that there's coming a day, okay, in what, what they considered the Messianic age, the dawn of the Messianic era, when the Messiah comes, he will pour out the Holy Spirit on every single person. There'll be no division between us. And what Peter is saying to the the crowd that day, he says, and it's happening today. That's happening today. Now, another interesting part is the difference between how Peter incorporates tongues into this fulfillment. This is kind of ironic. When you read Joel, you don't see anything about languages, right? It just has to do with they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and what will happen? They'll begin to prophesy. Now, here's the part that I want to emphasize to you. What is prophecy? And this is something that's hard to think about because when we think about prophecy, we tend to think of it only in terms of like predicting or telling the future. That's not how the prophets understood prophecy. That they believed uh, when a prophet spoke He could say things about the future that were true. But a prophet at at the basic core of what they were doing is they were declaring God's revealed will. And it could be God explaining something that happened in the past that already occurred. But it was divine disclosure. We're, We're relating to you God's thoughts and feelings and ideas or plans about a particular subject. Okay. Now, I want you to think about this. When you think about tongues, tongues, if, if, as we understand it here in the text, were languages, real languages, languages on the earth that were unknown to the, um, to the speaker. They didn't t- train in the language. They didn't study the language. They didn't learn the language. But when they get up, they begin to praise God on the day of Pentecost. They begin to declare the mighty acts of God. And everybody was hearing that in their own language. The part that I want to emphasize is the idea is this, is that tongues would be like the ultimate form of prophecy, if you think of it. Is that a person is getting up speaking, declaring God's revealed will. And they themselves don't know the language, but it's completely based upon the recipient who is hearing. And so so the the idea is this, as Peter is arguing from greater to lesser, he says, in fact, not only are these disciples prophesying, they're going so far as not to prophesy in their own language, they're prophesying in your language. This is like the ultimate sign of the fulfillment. Now, the part that I want us to think about is this. I'm going to go one more step. What happens then... When we see in other texts, Paul talks a bit about this. He, he makes statements like this. You can remember this. Do all prophesy? And his answer was what? No. 
Do all speak in tongues? And his answer was, no. Well, isn't it clear here that it says that everyone will prophesy? And I think you have to get back again to the basis of what prophecy is. Prophecy is declaring God's revealed will. It is helping people see who God is and what God is going to do. Then we've got to think about what it is, the content of what these people were declaring. You'll see really quickly in this sermon, in this sermon that Peter's going to do, is he shifts from the scriptures. And not, this is not away from the scriptures, but he sees how the scriptures are ultimately fulfilled in who? Jesus. <laughs> Notice he reads the scripture and the first word out of his mouth is what? Jesus of Nazareth. Now here's what I want you to think about and just meditate on this. Jesus is talked about in the New Testament as the ultimate, the definitive expression of God. To see Jesus is to see God. For Jesus to eat with you, you've ate with God. I mean, that's the way. If you walked along the road with Jesus, you've walked along with God. If you want to talk about the ultimate, not medium of prophecy, that's tongues, but the ultimate content of prophecy is to simply declare Jesus, proclaim Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you can preach Jesus? All of you. There is not a single person in this room that cannot share Christ dying for their sins, Him being physically buried, and rose from the dead. And here's what I need you to catch. Revelation tells us, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You want to disclose God and his will and what's about to happen in the future? Give people Jesus and you're prophesying. Do you understand that? We all prophesy. Every single one of us is a spirit-filled witness to the work of Jesus. And that's really the question. We can think about it like this. Can we claim to be a repentant believer who is spirit-filled and not preaching Jesus or sharing Jesus. Jesus makes it clear in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Church, you're bound to prophesy. I, I agree with Paul. Let every one of us prophesy. Let's all preach Jesus. And we're disclosing who God is to people. The second thing is this. The Holy Spirit's outpouring is connected to the last days. This is important to see, the last days. Now, when we think of last days, of course, we think of this apocalyptic imagery. And it's even talked about here in the text. You know, the blood, the, the moon turning to blood, right? The sun going out. You see all this cosmic songs. And what we fail to make... Um, There's a distinguishing feature in this text, and it's simply this, is when Joel sees the prophecy, and there's a lot of people uh, who explain prophecy like this, scholars and commentators, is that let's say that Joel sees this vision of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And and along with the great and terrible day of the Lord, proceed that are these signs of the Messiah coming, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these spirit-filled people prophesying. Right, and then these great cosmic signs, you know, the heavenlies, uh, this this absolute atmospheric upheaval, um, and we go and we look at Pentecost, and we go clearly that's not happening then. 
Where, where's the cosmic upheaval? Where's the sun going out? Where's the moon being turned to blood? And, and what we're seeing is this, is that Joel kind of sees the snapshot of the end. He doesn't necessarily see the time periods in between the songs. He just says these are all the things that have to kind of check off the box before the, the end comes. And so what Peter is declaring to them is that a partial fulfillment of Joel is happening today. But he needed them to understand the urgency of what's going on because no one could tell us, tell you exactly how long uh, the signs were between other signs. Does that see what I'm saying? Is you entered into the last days. We're there because the first box was checked off. And this is what's so important. I think church, sometimes we think to ourselves that, well, things have to get really bad before it's, quote, the end. And what I'll let you know is biblically, you've kind of messed it up. The, the, the spirit being poured out at Pentecost and birthing the church is a sign that we are in the end. That God's judgment is imminent. That what's being displayed in the heavenlies can happen in just a moment. And that God in his grace, and Peter talks about this, that God's given us a space for repentance so that people can come to saving faith in Christ before it's everlasting too late. And so there needs to be a sense of urgency with the proclamation of the gospel. You're not waiting. I need to let you know this. You're not waiting on the last days. You're in them. You're in them. Peter's saying we've arrived. Church, we are this eschatological community. We're a group of people going, we've been in the end for 2,000 years. He can come back at any moment. Are you ready? And so we have to think of it that way. And the last thing that we see in his sermon before he moves is that the last days is connected to God's end times salvation. Write it down. From his judgment available to all people in the name of the Lord. Here's the other thing that Joel prophesied. Just like the locust plague, where God said, if you'll repent, I'll relent of this locust plague. Here's what he's doing also in the prophecy about the end times. The end is coming, and it's worse than that locust plague. It'll be the dawn of the Messiah, the Spirit being poured out, people prophesying. And then the, the point is this, but before I return, I will give you an opportunity to repent. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They'll be delivered from this great and terrible day. He's making a space for repentance just like he did with the locust plague. Now here's what's so amazing about that. A couple of things. One, church, you're, you're here. We are left on the world in these last days. To offer that word of if you'll call out to Jesus, you can be delivered from God's judgment. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. That's why this church exists. Is to tell others to come to Christ before it's everlasting too late. That's what Peter did. That's what Peter did at the birth of the church. That's what we should be doing all the way till Christ calls us home. The other part that's equally fascinating is if you go read Joel back in the Hebrew... But it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. If you go back and read it in, in the book of Joel, it'll be in all caps. And, and we call this in theology the tetragrammaton. It's these four letters that represent the personal name of God. And many people believe it to be Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
I want you to see what he's doing here. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the God of Israel will be delivered from God's judgment. Now the question becomes, and this is where he segues. I mean, this is slick. Here's the the, the question in, in the people's mind. Well, how are we to call on the name of the Lord? How are we supposed to receive the benefit of deliverance and salvation from God's judgment? Who is the Lord? That's that's what he's trying to anticipate uh, the people asking. And you can write it down. Take it home. Jesus is Lord. What? This would have just shocked the crowd. As soon as he dropped it. Now, what you think of this? In the Greek, it is kurios. It is just the term Lord, like as in a, a supreme authority. And it's often used for a designation as God. But if you go and you do the, the, the simple cross-reference, they're asking this. This is how far Peter is going. This should just make people's jaws drop. He's saying, this Jesus is Yahweh. This Jesus is the God of Israel. You want to know the God of Israel? You need to know Jesus. You want salvation and deliverance in the God of Israel's name? That name is Jesus. Now you know that had a sin, I mean just chills down their spine because that group that he's preaching to was well aware of what happened to Jesus. They would have probably been like, you're kidding me, right? It's Jesus? And so he begins to explain, number two, the condemnation. He's going to make sense for them. Well, how is it that the God of Israel is crucified? Do you see how that works? How is it that the God of Israel becomes a criminal, so to speak? You know, charged with blasphemy, treason, nailed, naked, and executed on the cross. That makes no sense. And so he's going to do what the church is supposed to do. He's going to explain the gospel to them. <laughs> the good news. He's going to make sense of it. The first thing I want you to see and write it down is Jesus was accredited. Jesus was accredited. Look at what it says. I just want to read this to you again. It says, fellow Israelites, this is verse 22. Listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Could you just catch that for a second? They, he appealed to their own witness of Jesus' miracle power. They knew they could not explain what Jesus was able to do. They recognized it. In fact, you'll see centuries down the road, they'll do one of two things. They either claim that Jesus was just this Jewish sorcerer, a magic man, okay? Or that he was operating by a demonic spirit. It even says in the life of Jesus, he's doing this by Beelzebub, Satan himself. Either way, what I want you to catch in this is notice they don't say these things aren't real. He was clearly demonstrating some supernatural power. But their hardened hearts go, there, there's no way that's God in the flesh. It's impossible. He's tricking us or else he's doing something worse. It's something demonic. And he goes, you guys cannot even accept the fact that God was accrediting Jesus 
through these signs and miracles. He said, but that's what was happening. And then the second thing, he's got to address it. Jesus was crucified. Look at the next verse. He goes, he says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So the question then naturally becomes, and the Jews were asking it during Jesus' lifetime, hey, if you're the Messiah, just save yourself. And we talked about this already, that if he was really the Messiah, he could not both save himself and save you. He made a choice. I will deliver them from God's judgment, and I'll experience God's judgment myself for them. And so that's what, what Peter begins to unlock for him. Is that this was a part of God's plan all along. The New Testament continues to show that Jesus was slain, sacrificed for our benefit from the foundation of the world. God foreknew our sin. He knew our rebellion and our hostility in our minds and hearts to him. And yet what I love about this is he created the world already with the plan in place. Going, I love you and I will redeem you and reconcile you to myself. And so Jesus was headed to the cross the minute God said, let there be light. And at the same time, this is what's so hard. is, And this is the, the amazing sovereignty of God. Is that each of the individuals that were responsible for the, the murder of Jesus. Whether it was the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Roman Gentiles is that they did that of their own volition, that, that God still holds them culpable for the part in which they play. And this talks about the amazing, when we go and we, we think about the sovereignty of God, we're going, God, how can you go ahead and determine this, and at the same time, these folks be held culpable for the execution of Jesus. And, and here's where I'm at on this scenario. This is, this is like the first kind of you know, notion where the church is going to explore this thought throughout the New Testament. Here's all that I know, and this is where I'm at. Is when I think of salvation, the Bible makes it clear to me that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. It is 100%. He is. I am saved solely because of God's initiative. And the Bible also makes clear if there's ever any evil, sin, pain, suffer, suffering, worry, or anxiety in the world, it's because of our actions. It's us. I attribute my whole salvation to God and all the evil in this world to me. And the Bible leaves it at just that. How that works out, I can't truly tell you. I've got my theories. I've got my theology. Nevertheless, I'll say it this way. When it comes on judgment day, that's all that will matter. Salvation belongs to him and all the evil belongs to us. That's how it works. And so the point that we want to see in this is that God had determined this. And at the same time, we all have a part to play. You say, well, how am I responsible for the death of Jesus? Because the, the, the Bible equally makes clear it's our sin that put him there. If it wasn't for our own evil thoughts, feelings, actions, words, Jesus would have never went to the cross. You and I are all in somewhat culpable for the death of Jesus. And if the story ends there, I don't think you get the rest of history. But the last thing he's got to tell them is God raised him up, verse 24, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Now, 
I'm going to leave that last line and we'll talk about it next week. Why was it impossible for Jesus to be held by death? We'll talk about it next week. But what I want to mention here is that number three, Jesus was vindicated, was vindicated. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Because all the things that Jesus did, his miracle working power, all the things that he said, disclosing God's revealed will and the future to us. None of that matters if he's still in a tomb. None of that matters if he's just flesh and bone rotting away. But if God raised him from the dead, it is God's absolute and final vindication, his seal of approval on everything that his son said and did. And why does that matter? Because here's where it, it, it literally pushes onto you. If God raised Jesus from the dead, and, and God is also saying, I am coming to judge my creation according to my standards. And there is an eternal destiny for both the sheep and the goats. For those who repent of their sin and trust me for forgiveness and those who do not. And then Jesus goes, to far, goes as far as to say this. And it's only in Jesus' name that there's salvation and deliverance from this. Uh, you need to perk up and listen. That's why, why do you think Peter, I love Peter, he's like, listen, listen, listen to the words I'm saying. Check out what I'm saying. He gets the urgency. You've got to hear this so that you can respond appropriately. And they do. Boy, they do when it's done. But they see that God raises Jesus from the dead. I've got to be careful how I say this, but the pains of death. Some commentators believe it's the cords of death. And what it's in reference to is this really interesting idea is death being a pregnant woman who has a child, okay, and the child's about to be delivered, but the, the essentially the idea is but the but the woman doesn't want to let the child be delivered, trying to hold the child back. Now if you know this, it's impossible to do that. Right? And the idea is this is they, they took Jesus, put him in the womb of the tomb, and death was going to give his give him his best shot. I'm going to hold this guy back. And it made it what, a day and a half? <laughs> And he's birthed out. An amazing kind of metaphor to think about the resurrection of Jesus. Death literally could not hold him back. Couldn't keep a grip on him any longer. And delivered him up. And in his deliverance, we're delivered. A couple of things I want you to write down. I do want you to know this. God promises to forgive you. Please note that. Do you understand the wonderful promise in this prophecy? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Will be. They will be. And to note, note who is giving this sermon was a man who was in need of God's forgiveness. This is a man who denied Jesus, denied the name of Jesus. Do you catch that? And what does God do? At the birth of a church, he platforms a guy that goes, let me tell you right now, when it comes to sin, I'm one of the greatest sinners. <laughs> I have denied the very name of the God of Israel. He did. And so Peter is this living proof to us. Okay? If you go, I am beyond God's redemption. Not so. Not so. Peter stands in testimony going, I'm here because Jesus loves me and forgives me. 
And then the other part is this. Think about this. You go, I'm too broken. I'm too beat down to be useful to God. What do you do with Peter? What do you do with Peter? He becomes the vessel, the spokesperson that births the early church. Some backwoods redneck fishermen, right? The greatest living theologian. <laughs> I mean, what? God's not done with you. And this should show you just the goodness and the mercy of God. He's not done. And he is willing and ready to forgive. Willing and ready to use you for his glory. But notice what Peter had to do. If you know this story, he wanted to go back fishing. And Jesus called him. He's like, you got to choose. You can go fishing or fishing for men. It's your choice. And Peter said, I, I, I want to do what you're doing. <laughs> he accepted it. And you've got to do the same. And last but not least, I want to mention this and I'll be done. No one is automatically saved. This is, this is the one, this is the statement or the theology that doesn't go well in our world. When we talk about the death of Jesus, we're not saying that his sacrificial death is automatic, automatically applied to every person's account. That you can go on living your life in sin, okay, not coming to terms with it. Not trusting in Jesus' righteousness and what he's done for you for the forgiveness of sin. And some people somehow still think that when judgment day comes, I'm going to be okay. Now, I know that kind of makes good you know, logic post the Bible. But I, under, I need you to understand, the very Bible that discloses God's judgment and discloses God's love to us, make sure that we understand that they meet together in the name of Jesus. They come together in Christ. You want to see the severity of your sin? Look at the cross of Jesus. The death of God's Son. You want to see the love of God, His infinite mercy and grace? Look at the cross of Jesus, the death of God's Son. They meet. And so all of our thinking about that just washes away. No one is automatically saved. In Jesus' name, we are calling people to repentance. Come to terms with you're a sinner. You're a rebel against a holy God. And if he were to return today, you would spend eternity in hell. That is God's honest truth, according to the Bible. And at the same time, that God who is just and holy is infinitely loving and merciful and has made the one and only way for you to be delivered or saved from his righteous wrath. And that is to call out on his son. That's it. I gave you my son. I bankrupted heaven and gave you my best. You call on his name. And here's how we can call. I mean, think about calling out. We got calling out, praying to Jesus. It makes absolute sense because Jesus ain't dead. And he's the son of God. You see how that works? Can you call out to Jesus? Yep, I can. He's done made everything available. So call out to him. I want to leave you just with one passage of Scripture. I'm not going to take the time to explain it. But I want to read to you Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I felt like when I read 1 Peter chapter 1, it was like Peter's synopsis or evaluation of his first sermon. He's going to give it to us in a nutshell. 
in his epistle. He writes this. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to y'all, searched and carefully investigated. They wanted to know who is the Lord. Who is the one that's going to save us? They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Holy Spirit's working on them going, where is this Messiah? Where is this Savior? Is he here among us? Is he somewhere out in the future? (laughs) He says this, it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but y'all. The prophets go, we won't get to see him. But we're saying this for these future generations that will know him. He says, these things have now been announced to y'all through those who preach the gospel to y'all. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says this, angels long to glimpse into such things. You see how it works? Angels would rejoice. If they got that message... That Pentecostal message, whoo, they'd, they'd lose it. They'd go Pentecostal. <laughs> and then he ends it with this. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Grace to still come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I cannot wait to see that grace on Judgment Day. I'm going to ask you. You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening.